And as we continue our study of the life of King David, I want to remind you that uh, a few, uh, about a few of the things we talked about last week. And one of the things that we talked about last week, if you'll remember, is the fact that many people want to read David as a 21st century Christian. And we can't do that. We have to understand the the primitive era in which he was in which he was born. He was, if you remember, he was only five generations removed from the Exodus from Egypt, five generations away from slavery in Egypt. He was only four generations away from the from the uh, the collapse of the walls of Jericho. These were these were re- more recent events than sometimes we realize. His Great, 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 great grandmother, and I don't know, I may have one too many greats in there, I'm not sure, but uh, they all run together, but his great, 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 at least grandmother was Rahab the harlot who helped the spies escape from uh, uh, the the city of Jericho. And his great grandmother was Ruth, a Gentile Moabitess woman who came to Bethlehem and married a farmer, her, her kinsman redeemer who was named Boaz, and he, he came from this primitive agrarian society. Now, if you don't know the word agrarian, I like to help you learn new words. That just means agricultural. It was based on agriculture, whether it was farming or ranching. Those are both considered agrarian societies. So Israel, as we came to, as we came to know it later, as we read about it in much of the Old Testament, didn't really exist at the time of David's birth. The land was there, uh, but there was no federal government. There was no national government. There was no monarchy in place. All there was was a kind of a loose coalition of tribes that were led by tribal elders. And those tribal elders bickered with each other almost as much as they bickered with the tribes, other tribes that lived in the in the area around them. And if you remember, there was this intermingling, not by marriage as much, but by, by proximity uh, of all these tribes. There were no precise borders. You know, we think of nations today and we think of borders. It's a concept that we have that they didn't have at that point in time. Uh, for example, the, the Amorites, they were concentrated in a certain area, but they also lived elsewhere and they, they didn't have a nation with specific borders. And so if, if you were an Israelite, the village that was next to yours might be an Amalekite village. Uh, or it might be another Jewish village. It, you just didn't, you know, it varied. Uh, for example, y- you remember David lived in Bethlehem. And there was no Jerusalem when David was, was born. David was the one who founded Jerusalem. He actually took over a city uh, called Jebus, which we'll get to that in another time later in David's life. And it was, he renamed it Jerusalem. But that city belonged to the Jebusites and it was a it was a stronghold that was within walking distance of a Jewish city called Bethlehem, and, and so in general you could say that in the Negev to the south of Israel, that was where the really depraved raiders, the the Viking sort of people, the uh, they were the Amalekites, and then to the west of the tribal region of Judah was the Philistines, and their capital was Gath. To the east of Judah were the Edomites. And, and with their massive capital carved into the rocks there of Edom. In the north and east were the Ammonites. Which, by the way, the Ammonites uh, became the, the modern nation of Jordan. So the, the ancient tribe of the Ammonites are the, are the current Jordanians. In fact, 
Anybody know what the capital of Jordan is? Ammon. Another way you might be able to say that is Ammon. It's the same. It's the people. Those are the Ammonites that became the Jordanians. Um, then ranging northward uh, toward uh, of Judah there would have been uh, other areas of the, of the tribes, but there was no specific area. It didn't mean that people from Judah couldn't live in a town that was filled with people from another tribe. Uh, you know, so Judah, you know, the, they could live in a town that was predominantly Benjamite and Benjamites could live in a town that was predominantly Dan. It wasn't that you couldn't. It's just that that's where we, the way they tended to exist at the time. And we know the first king of Israel, Saul, was a Benjamite and his capital was at Gibeah. And he, he instituted a sort of an informal draft uh, it, it wasn't a national law or anything, but this is what he what it says that he did. He said in First Samuel fourteen fifty two, it says there was strong war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. So they were this constant battle. And you remember anybody remember from last week what the Philistines had that the Jewish people did not have? Iron. That was what it was. the The, the nation of Israel was still in the Bronze Age. The Philistines were dominant uh, during this time period before David because they had iron and that, that gave them the, the edge. But so there was strong war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And listen to what it says. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him into his service. So it wasn't really a, an official draft. But what do you say to the king when he says, you're a good fighter. You're coming with me right now. You went. That's what you did. And so what that did was uh, it began to break down that tribal separation. Because now what was happening is Saul would see he was a Benjamite. He couldn't fill out uh, an army for the nation of Israel with just the people from the tribe of Benjamin. So he would see somebody from the tribe of Dan and he'd say, listen, you are really a mighty warrior. You're coming with me. You're part of the army now. And he would come. And he'd see somebody from the tribe of Judah and do the same thing. Somebody from the tribe of Asher do the same thing. Now, all of a sudden, what you've got is, before, whenever they'd go to battle, Benjamites were always standing shoulder to shoulder with other Benjamites during the battle. Now you have Benjamites that are standing next to Asherites and Danites and people from the tribe of Judah, because Judahite doesn't sound right. <laughs> And so now it begins to break down a little bit of the, of the tribal identity and give them more of a national identity. Now they begin to see themselves, instead of saying, I am a Benjamite, now they begin to see themselves a little more of being able to say that to themselves, I am an Israelite. You see, that, see how that could happen? So that's what was taking place. So Saul did some good things. Now, now Saul didn't break it down that barrier all the way. Because he, he still kept Benjamin as the central tribe and he had the national, uh, the, the national capital. His capital was still in the city of Gibeah, which is, which is in the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and, and that's important to remember later on when David becomes king. So we have this primitive agricultural society and a tribal culture where the Gentile tribes are living in and among the Hebrew tribes and there's this very low level of national identity. And the capital of the nation is, is really one of the tribal cap capitals. So that's the setting. And today what we're going to talk about, there, there were 
uh, we're going to talk about three important things that happen in David's youth that are defining moments, very important moments that kind of shape who he became, not only as a man, but also as the king of Israel. And the first is the place where David first shows having some touch of the miraculous upon his life. And this took place when he was just a shepherd boy. He was a young man. He was a boy, uh, maybe maybe an early teen, but but probably not even quite that old yet. But in that in that range, that age range. Now you got to understand that it was really common in this type of society to send the youngest boy out to tend the family sheep. David is the least of the least. He has seven older brothers. They're all grown men who are big, strong guys. They're warriors. And and let's just be honest. His brothers just consider him as kind of a weird little kid. He's In their eyes, he's this strange boy at best and a bragging liar at worst. You say, what are you talking about? Well, let, let's, just, let's just talk about David and, and you know his brothers as they saw him. Uh, he has these gifts. David is gifted in music. He's really a prodigy. He's a, he's a very young child at this point in time, a very young man. Uh, and, uh, and he picks up a lyre, which is more, more or less like a harp, you know, or something like that as... Uh, you know, modern day banjo or something. He picks it up. He, he, I don't know where he got it, but he, he finds this liar and, and, uh, here's this little kid and, and they, they, they sent him out into Judean wilderness. Now, some of you are thinking, how could you send your kid out there? But it was very common. Have you ever seen anybody ever been to Israel here? I haven't uh, one person. I, I want to go one day, but, but you probably have seen pictures. And when we say, Judean wilderness, trust me, we mean wilderness, all capital letters. I mean, it looks like a bomb went off there in in places. There's just nothing there. And you think to yourself, this little kid out there by himself tending these sheep, it just seems like a dangerous thing. But you know what? You still see it today. Not not with Jewish shepherds because the modern Israeli society is is not agricultural in in nature as much, but you do see Arab shepherds. You, so you'll see these little barefoot kids wandering around in the wilderness with a, a little herd of sheep and they'll be, you'll be a thousand miles from nowhere and then all of a sudden out of nowhere comes this little barefoot kid with a herd of goats and you think, where did he come from? Well, that's David. That's what he did. And, and so here's this weird little kid out there and he's, and he drives the sheep in one day from the Judean wilderness and his brothers say, what did you do today? He said, you know, the funniest thing happened. I found this musical instrument. And you know what? I don't know how exactly, but I can play that sucker. And, and so he's a kid, but he can play the lyre. And he's, he writes songs. I picture him out there lying underneath the stars and looking at creation and writing music. But his brothers aren't too impressed, as brothers often aren't. Then one day he walks in and is, you know, I, I can picture, see, I mean, you, you just forgive me. I picture it in, in the context of uh, a family. And I know that when brothers are jealous of the baby brother, that there's this tendency to, to, to want to be mean. And 
mom will always intervene. You know what I'm talking about? So I just picture mom saying, now you boys, you be nice to him. So he comes in from the fields and the brothers trying to be, uh, obey their mom, look at him and say, hey, b- little brother, what'd you do today to, out there? And he walks in and they ask him this and he says, well, today I was with the sheep and a lion came and attacked the sheep. And they suddenly, they're a little interested. Well, what did you do? He said, well, I killed it. I killed it. And, and it, can you imagine the ridicule from the older brothers? The mockery he must have endured. We know that, particularly with Eliab, the oldest brother, we know he didn't respect him. You saw, we'll, and if you, you've probably read it, but we'll see it when we get to the story of David and Goliath, that Eliab, Eliab had zero respect for David. Because when he showed up there on the battlefield with David and Goliath, he said, I know what you're here for. You're just here to see the battle. You spoiled brat. And so the, imagine the mockery he must have endured. Perhaps Eliab then, the eldest, led the verbal assault. Killed a lion, did you now? Wow, that must have been a danger, some dangerous business. It's a miracle you weren't killed. And this, this naive child says it was a miracle. An absolute miracle. It was a great miracle. And they said, how exactly did you kill this ferocious beast and he said you know that's the funny part I'm not precisely clear on that he said the lion grabbed one of the sheep and and started taking off and I grabbed hold and I took the sheep out of its mouth I took that little lamb out of its mouth and and then the lion turned on me because he was mad at me because I just stole his dinner and so I just grabbed his beard and I swung my little fist and he died You can read about it. That's how he describes what happened. Imagine the laughter in that moment. See, see, it wasn't because David was strong enough to kill a lion. It was a miracle where God intervened and God gave David what he needed to be able to, to, to kill that lion. And, they, and I just imagine the laughter. David begins to realize he's being mocked by now. But he presses on. He says, it's true. I killed him. Just like the bear. Oh, a bear too. A lion and a bear. My, what a warrior you are. What a slayer of beasts we have among us today. And they're all like, oh yeah, Sure. See, you might imagine if his father says to him, David, next time you kill a lion or a bear, why don't you just cut his head off and bring their heads home? You know, you just can't come in here and tell your brothers you killed a lion or you killed a bear without any proof. You've got to have some proof. So next time, just cut their head off and bring it back home. Remember that. Here's what I learned a long time ago. Mark it down in your, in your diary. Be careful what you say to a kid because they will remember it. Well, that's the first event. He killed a lion and a bear. That was a huge moment in shaping David and his faith in God. He's this odd little shepherd boy that is kind of mistrusted. I mean, I don't know if any of you are the youngest among your siblings. Or have young, Any of you are here are the youngest in your family? Okay, any of you have younger siblings? All right, 
Well, there's often a perception that the youngest child is A, strange, or B, spoiled. Say what? Stan says. And that's how they feel about David. Eliab and Abinadab and Shemia and the others, when, when David comes in with his goofy stories, dragging his lyre in you know, over his shoulder and saying he killed a lion and a bear, I can just imagine them talking to Jesse, their father, and saying, you've got to whoop that boy. He's out there. He's lying. He's saying he killed a lion and a bear. There's just no way. That's the first event. The second event is this. Samuel comes to Bethlehem. To anoint a new king. Now there's no media. There's no press. There's no newspaper. There's no television. There's no, there are no photographs. So I want you to think about this. People didn't know what famous people looked like. Right? They would have heard about them. Because that's how stories were passed on. They were passed on orally. They would, they would hear about the history of Israel. They would hear about what God has done somewhere else. But they didn't, they didn't know what those famous people looked like. They know their names, but they don't know their faces. And the most famous person in Israel, at least arguably, uh, w- would be this aging prophet named Samuel. Who has, by anointing Saul as king... He, he, at that moment, he sort of retired from the stage. And he turned leadership of this fledgling, fledgling nation over to Saul. And Samuel, at that moment, just kind of backs away from the leadership of the nation. So he's, I guess, a semi-retired prophet or something. I don't know how that works. And one night, Samuel walks into the village of Bethlehem. And he says, he announces, basically, he says, I'm here to anoint the, the next king. Now, I want you to know that's a really scary moment. Anybody know why that's a really scary moment? Yeah, there is already a king. So, so when you say that, you're talking treason. You know, as a matter of fact, if you read it, uh, we, we don't have time tonight, but if you read in chapter 16 and, and 17, well, it might be, you might have to go back a little bit further, but when... When, uh, when God told Samuel, go down to Bethlehem, find Jesse the Bethlehemite because one of his sons I've chosen to be king and you're going to anoint him as king, Samuel said, all right, well, God, how am I supposed to do that? Because if I do that, Saul's going to kill me. So this is a dangerous situation. This is a, what, what it looks like treason in the eyes of Saul and any of his supporters. So, so, so Samuel He says, bring all the elders. He gets there and he says, bring all the elders of the village of Bethlehem and and bring them to Jesse's house. I'm going to anoint the new king. It's this dark and mysterious thing that's going on. Here's this prophet and he's in the room with all of them and the torches are going and the elders are assembled and, and somebody, you know, looks at Samuel and they say, look, you know, you're Samuel, you're the prophet and we don't we don't want to argue with you because you know we know prophets can you know kill people and we don't want that to happen we're with you we want you to know that but 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 Samuel we just we just have one question what's that what about Saul what what about Saul and Samuel more or less says what about him 
I have nothing to do with Saul anymore. The new king is in this house. That's what I'm here about. And he says, bring forward the sons of Jesse. And and as he does that, somebody tell me, what was the, the defining physical characteristic of Saul? His tall, his height, that was his defining physical characteristic. The Bible says he was the tallest man in the kingdom of Israel, and and, and that the second tallest man in all of Israel only came up to his shoulders. And Samuel says, bring forward the sons of Jesse. And so the first one comes up is Eliab. And here's this great, big, tall man. You know, I mean, he looks kingly. He's powerful. And Samuel says to himself, well, he's, he's not exactly Saul, but he is pretty tall. He's, he looks really good. He, he, he's a big guy. He, and he's the eldest. I mean, he's respectable. I mean, and so he's, he begins, I picture, he begins to stretch out the oil and he's just about to anoint him. And, he, and then he feels the check of the Holy Spirit. And, and God says, this is not the one. Oh, and he turns to Abinadab. This is not the one. And then here comes Shemiah. Or Shama, in some translations say, this is not the one. And he goes through all of them one by one. This is not the one. This is not the one. This is not the one. Until all of the seven sons of Jesse who were there in the house passed in front of him. Then he says to Jesse something that to me, honestly, I, I find humor oftentimes in Scripture. And this is one of the funniest exchanges in all the Bible to me because he he looks at Jesse after after going through these sons that are here and he says uh, are you sure this is all your kids <laughs> and this is I find that humorous that he would ask that question and but Jesse is kind of caught in that moment because Jesse says well uh, <laughs> You know, I, I do have another, another boys, but he's, you know, I mean, if you want, and the brothers are saying, yeah, if you want to count him. It, and Samuel says, where is he? Well, he's, you know, he's just an odd little guy. He's out in the desert. He thinks he kills things. You know, he's just, he's just a funny little kid. Do, do you want us to call him? Samuel says, well, we're not going to sit down and eat until he's here. So they wait. David has no idea what's going on at this point in time. And they send out for David and bring him in. And he walks in. And as he walks in, now don't get this, don't get the Michelangelo picture of David. You know, the statue of, Mike, of David that Michelangelo, this, with this muscular, sculpted uh, young man, you know, that we, we look at and say, wow, that's impressive. And I say, how in the world did they... Did they get uh, capture my body in that in that statue? Uh, that was a joke, by the way. Um, but they but don't get don't look at that. Don't think of him that way. He's this skinny, like pre-adolescent little young man with knees like a camel. You know what I'm talking about? Picture this more with a sunburned nose and his hair is all tousled. He smells like sheep. Has anybody ever smelled sheep? Anybody? Anybody ever smelled barn animals, farm animals? Okay, you get the picture. He comes in, he smells like this, which by the way, at this point in time, interesting thing is that before they went into this time, 
that Samuel consecrated himself and he consecrated Jesse, he consecrated all the sons that were there. We don't know exactly what that means, whether it was a ceremonial washing or if they did some sacrifice, but they all went through this procedure. Not David, he was out in the field somewhere. But God didn't care about all of that stuff, did he? So anyway, he, he comes in, he's looking like this, he's, he's, you know, he's got his, his lyre slung over his shoulder and he comes in and everybody's looking at him and, and he was probably from the south, so he said, did, did y'all call me? God says to Samuel, this is the one. And Samuel walks over to David and he takes up that horn of oil and he pours it the oil over David in front of all the elders of the city of Bethlehem and in front of all of his brothers. Now, now listen, David, from all that we know at this point in time, has no more idea than a goose what's going on. He just walks into the house. I mean, there's no record that anybody explained it to him. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but he just comes in out of the field and there's this old man that he doesn't know because Samuel's face is not known because they didn't have photographs. And there's this old man in his house and he walks up to him and starts pouring oil on him. Now there's recorded Josephus, a Jewish historian. He records the tradition that while he was pouring it oil on him that he leaned over and whispered in David's ear, you will be the next king. We don't know if that really happened or not, but that's their tradition. But to that point in time, David doesn't know what's going on. And he's looking over at his dad saying, what's the deal? And I can picture Jesse saying, well, that's what happens when you kill bears, David. Now, all of a sudden, David is, is anointed and it's, it's, it's as if that moment just, just then kind of hangs there. Because Samuel leaves. And David goes back to the sheep, and nobody talks about it. Just this odd moment. Now now listen to me on this. I'm going to tell you something, because there are going to be moments in our lives when God does something in you that resonates deeply within you, and, and you can feel it, you, you, can, you can hear the, God in those moments, you feel those moments deeply, they just sort of echo throughout your being, they, they, they kind of ping on your sonar screen, and, and, and you walk away from that moment thinking to yourself, that was big. That was really, really big. I don't know that I understand it, but God just did something really big in my life. And the natural inclination is to think that something is going to happen. And so we say, okay, okay, now now that that's happened, my life and destiny are going to unfold before me. And then years go by and nothing happens. I want you to hear me this, this, this evening. When those years go by and nothing happens, that changes nothing. Because that doesn't erase that moment where God spoke. David waiting for those years did not erase, did not change the moment when God through the prophet Samuel anointed him as king. It did not change it one bit. His destiny and his calling was exactly the same. even, Even though he had to wait for years and years and years for it to become a reality. 
God has made contact. And all we can do is wait. Now, I'm going to get back to that in a minute. The next step for David, and this is really the third thing that shaped him, really, really was the fact that David had to wait. See, this moment here, this prophet walks in, he walks into the house, the prophet pours oil on him, and everybody's saying, next king of Israel, next king of Israel. And for David, that happens, and then you know what? Everything else goes back to normal. I love David's response to this. He didn't go down to the nearest department store and start trying on crowns. I wonder what that one will look like. You know, he didn't, he didn't order a new set of business cards telling the printer, change it from shepherd to king. He just went back to tending the sheep. And he waited while God worked. That's the key that we've got to learn in our lives. We've got to learn to wait while God works. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we don't do anything. David was working, but he was just doing what God gave him to do at the moment, wasn't he? He wasn't doing anything to try to become king. He wasn't trying, doing anything to try to manipulate circumstances to force it to happen. He just did what God gave him to do and waited. And while he waited, God worked. He was at work. Because here's the thing, remember in your story, in, in, put it this way, in every story, your story is not the only story. Because while David's story is playing out, Saul's story is going at the same time. And what God is doing there is going on at the same time. The prophet Samuel's story is going on at the same time. And God is doing all kinds of things. And God was working in other places, in other people, to prepare the way for His will to be done. Now, remember that by this point in time, God has withdrawn His anointing from Saul. And Saul falls into this demonic nightmare world where he's filled with rages. He can't sleep at night. He feels guilt-ridden. He's just in a terrible way. The Bible puts it this way in, in 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 14. It says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Talking about David. And, and the spirit of the Lord came on David from that day forward. That's a great verse. But then the next verse says, so Samuel arose and went to Raymond. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrified him. This is all going on at the same time. Spirit of the Lord is coming on David at the same time the spirit of the Lord is leaving Saul. And the Bible says that an evil spirit from the Lord terrified him. Now, that's a problematic verse for most of us, you know, when, it, when we read that the Lord sent an evil spirit. But really what we're talking about there was that, that the Lord uh, sent the punishment that Saul had earned. We know that sin earns, uh, earns death. It earns judgment. It earns punishment, right? We understand that, right? Um, I, I, I try to explain it sometimes by saying obedience to God is uh, his commands are like an umbrella over us that there's a there's a, a layer of protection we're under his covering when we do what he says when we're walking in obedience when we're walking according accordance to his commands how many of you own an umbrella 
if you don't own an umbrella in South Carolina, then you are braver than I am. Uh, but but uh, he, an umbrella, here's the question I have for you about an umbrella. If, if, even if you open an umbrella in the midst of a storm, if you hold it out here, what good is it? When is an umbrella useful for you? When you're under it. That's what God's commands are like. It's, it's, it's an umbrella that's a covering. It doesn't mean that nothing bad is going to happen, but it means that it's protection for your soul. It's protection for your spiritual life. It's protection for your relationship with Jesus when you do that. But when you move out from underneath that umbrella, then when things begin, when you begin to get wet, you can't blame the maker of the umbrella. You know, if you walk around with your umbrella in the rain holding it out here, you can't, you can't uh, uh, call your, your lawyer and then sue the umbrella maker because you're getting wet and you bought an umbrella so you shouldn't be getting wet because the whole point of the umbrella is you've got to stay underneath it. So Saul, in his, in his blatant disobedience to God, he has moved out from that umbrella and God has he, he's given him multiple chances. And now at this point in his life, God says, the kingdom is, go, uh, is gone from you, Saul. I'm not with you anymore. The Spirit of God is, has moved away from him. And, and this, this, this demonic spirit, this evil spirit, or this troubling spirit, somehow or another has come upon Saul. And he can't sleep at night. And he, he's having these horrible nightmares. But watch what God does. Because you remember last week we ended by saying, that, that, that here are these two very different people that are very far apart. And the question was, how, how would he be able to get them together? This shepherd boy from a, from a small tribe in a, in a small little town and this king of the nation that's living in Gibeah, how would he ever get them together? Well, Saul is going through all of this stuff. And somebody in the camp says to King Saul, you know what, I know a kid... In Bethlehem that can really play the banjo. And he can sing like a bird. Now you know it wasn't really a banjo. I'm just trying to bring it into modern language a little bit. And he says why don't we. Why don't we bring that kid up here. And then King you lie down on the bed. And let him sing to you. Sing you to sleep at night. Let's see if that will help. So David is summoned by the camp of King Saul. And let me say to you. that At this point in time. Uh, Goliath has not happened yet, uh, and, and David has very little interaction with Saul during this moment, during this period right here early on in this. But so, so he comes in at night, and the king is on the other side of the tent, because, you know, a king's not gonna have a pup tent. You know, it's gonna be a, a, a large tent, and so he's over there, and he's lying down in his bed, and just moaning and growing, and here's this little boy, and the captain of the guard brings him in and says, here, you sit here, you, you begin to play your music, you begin to sing and, 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 and see if it will help the, the king sleep. And here he is, he's away from home, he's very young, he, his parents are, are nowhere near, and he stays awake all night playing and singing for a, uh, for a demonically uh, tormented king. I mean, this would be a very odd and frightening moment in a little boy's life. So David plays and at last the king sleeps. But in time, David is sent back to Bethlehem. Saul and his army, they go out for battle and nothing else happens for David. It's over. 
He just simply goes back to shepherding again. And here's what I want you to know. That's exactly where God wanted him to be right then. See, we've got to learn what David understood. We've got to learn to wait on the Lord. You know, many people, especially young people, spend too much time trying to force their way into opportunities. You know, whether we're fresh out of college or 20 years into our profession, when we see even a hint of an opportunity, our initial instinct may be to try to push the door open ourselves. But I want you to hear promotion comes from the Lord. So you are where you are right now because where you are is where God wants to use you right now. Wait on the Lord for, for your next opportunity. I'm not just talking about, uh, about getting a new job at work. I'm talking about ministry opportunity. I'm talking about doing what God calls you to do. See, faith is counting on the Lord when we do not know what tomorrow holds. And all we have to do in, this, in our lives, in every one of these situations, is just to be obedient. David was obedient and waited on the Lord. Samuel was obedient in going to, to anoint David, even though it put his life in danger, in danger. Excuse me. The good news is, here's the great news about obedience. Anybody wanted to hear some good news? The good news about obedience is you don't have to be smart to be obedient. Can I get a praise the Lord? <laughs> you don't have to be clever to be obedient. You don't, ha- you don't have to be gifted to be obedient. Can I get a praise the Lord? Some of you are like, why should I? I am gifted. All you have to be to be obedient is to obey. That's it. And when that opportunity comes, you, that, when he puts you in a place, maybe it's tending sheep out in a Judean wilderness like David was. When that opportunity comes, You do your best, offer your best to him and leave the rest to the Lord. See, after David saying Saul to sleep, he he didn't, he didn't go snoop around that tent, uh, you know, to plan a hostile takeover. He didn't say, this is my chance. God put me here in the tent of the king. Now this is my opportunity. I know I'm supposed to be king. So I'm going to sneak around. I'm going to find what I can. Maybe I'll find a knife. I can do him in tonight and I can be king. He didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. In fact, he did what he was brought there to do. And then he went home to his sheep. David had an opportunity to serve the king, and he did it well. And that's all God wanted from him at that moment. His moment to become the ruling king had not yet arrived. He had to wait on God. And so for us, oh, that we would follow David's lead. Learn to wait on the Lord. Trust in his timing. Let God be the one that guides you to Saul's tent. Let God work on Saul. Let God work on you. Let God work on Samuel. And eventually all the lines that need to come together in your life, all of those things will intersect at just the right moment, at God's moment, if we will just trust him and be obedient and be patient and wait upon the Lord. See, God is in control of your life, and He's working at different places and at different times to get you where you need to be at just the right time. See, arriving at the right place is really good, isn't it? 
But arriving there at the right time is even better. You do what he's given you to do to the best of your ability. And if sheep is all you've got, then you be the best shepherd that you you can be. If a beat up old banjo is all you've got, then you learn to play it the best that you can. Let the opportunity of God present itself in God's timing because he's the one that's in control of everything. You know, Abraham, he tried to, tried to make God's will happen in his way by, by uh, sleeping with Hagar, his, uh, Sarah's handmaiden, and then Ishmael was, was born, and God said, you got it wrong, Abraham. It's not going to be by your manipulation. I'm going to do it miraculously. It's going to be you and Sarah. And then Abraham had to deal with all the fallout of Ishmael and sending out Hagar. And then Ishmael became the father of the Arab nations, which they're still having issues today. And when we try to do it on our own and try to force the issue, we give birth to our own Ishmael's. Learn to wait on God. You know, in the early days, years of David, and we're almost done, one of the hallmarks of his life that I see is that he seems quiet under the hand of God. And God brings him to the moment of divine destiny in his way and in his time. You know, David was a nobody that nobody noticed. You know, if you and I had been Jews living in the time of David, all of our attention would have been focused on a man named Saul, the first king of Israel. He was the focal point of of the Jewish world at, at the time. He was taking the country by storm. Meanwhile, a nobody was keeping sheep for his father in the Judean hillsides near the town of Bethlehem. A little boy named David whom nobody noticed except God. God chose David not because he was somebody but because he was a man after God's own heart and I can tell you this on that day when he was anointed king of Israel there is no one that was there everyone there thought oh surely it's Eliab no it's not Eliab okay well then you know if you're the second oldest you're thinking well if it's not Eliab then it's got to be me no it's not him there is nobody there. Everybody there expected one of those seven to be anointed king of Israel. And nobody, nobody, not even his parents, none of his brothers, nobody expected David to be the one. Not that little nobody out there in the field that smells like sheep and thinks he kills lions and bears. That weird kid? Really? Well, listen. All that's good news for us. You know why? Because we are nobodies that nobody notices. You say, well, that's kind of mean. Well, listen, 1 Corinthians. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And God has chosen the base things of the world and things which are despised Yes, and he chose things which did not exist to bring to nothing things that do so that no flesh should boast in his presence. Here's the the news. It's depending on your level of pride, it's either good news or hurtful. You have been chosen by God. And he chose the foolish things of the world. 
And he chose the weak things of the world. And he chose the base things of the world. And he chose the things that are not. The nobodies. And the reason he did that is because when we are obedient and he does something through us, everybody knows that had to be God. Because they look at you and me and they say, (laughs) I know them. They're the nobodies. It couldn't have been them. It had to be God. And he gets the glory. Bow your head. Let's pray. Father.